Well, hello and welcome back to the Theotivity Podcast. My name is Thaddeus and I'm glad that you've joined me for this episode. I'm looking forward to this one. This is an important one. Um, in previous episodes, we had talked a little bit about this topic. Um, and if you go back to episode 41 and 42, we were talking about uh, social justice and its infiltration basically into the church and how it's a, a anti-gospel. If you missed those episodes, definitely go back and check it out. Uh, I was taking a look at how um, this woke and social justice ideology has made its way into the church and then also comparing it to see how it's really an anti-gospel, that this is something that's against the Christian faith. Um, it comes from a totally different worldview that is against Christian principles. Um, but in this episode, what I wanted to do is actually to, to just do a little bit more specific of a study on this, uh, because it is an important issue in our culture today that I think Christians need to be well-prepared to give a, a biblical answer to. So that's what we're going to focus in on this episode. We're going to look at social justice versus biblical justice. Now I gave some of the uh, key factors of these, um, the points that we're going to go through in this episode in the previous episode, but this one we're going to expand on it because now I want to give you a positive view of what biblical justice is. So in the previous episodes, we looked kind of negatively at some of the bad features of social justice, but I want now to give you a positive um, view of what biblical justice actually is. What is it that we're supposed to actually seek biblically? And I want you to then be able to see what's the difference and why it matters. So we're going to compare the two, biblical justice versus social justice, by looking at biblical texts and seeing what God's word says about true justice. Now, my voice is kind of recovering from a little cold. So if I sound a little bit off today. Uh, that's why. <laughs> Please forgive me. Also, I'll be teaching this uh, this material in a workshop that's being hosted at my church, uh, which I'll probably link to in either the notes for this episode or in an article um, related to this. I'll make sure that the links are in the description. Anyways, let's jump on in. The Theotivity Podcast. Theotivity is the place where theology and creativity come together. Here you'll find audio narration of articles, episodes exploring the faith, culture, the arts and media, systematic theology, apologetics, guest interviews with Christian thinkers, creatives, pastors, theologians, and much more. At Theotivity.com, you'll find articles and resources to help you grow in your faith, as well as a portfolio of creative works. Like, share, and subscribe to stay up to date on the latest content. The topic of social justice has become a huge issue uh, of much debate and confusion in our times is an issue that's not simply out there in the world, but also in the church. As Christians, we still inhabit the same world and live in the same cultural atmosphere as the rest of the population. Therefore, we're also being influenced every day by, by these competing worldviews and religions, right? Even atheistic and secular ones. Many of you perhaps have already had to undergo, you know, mandatory equity, diversity, and inclusion training, EDI or DIE or... DEI, however they do the acronym, um, at your workplace or uh, through affirmative action policies, right? EDI and affirmative action are some of the ways that social justice touches us and affects the way that our culture thinks about these issues of justice. Uh, and its roots are actually in a discipline called critical theory, which is a neo-Marxist ideology that's at the root of this secular concept of social justice. And like I said, We've covered some of that in previous episodes. Go back and check it out. Now, this is not limited to secular workplaces and schools. These ideologies have also infiltrated the church as well. So, for example, uh, Dr. Owen Strand, he notes in his book, Christianity and Wokeness, this quote, um, it is arguable that no other book has been more influential in the evangelical wokeness movement than divided by faith. 
Emerson and Smith's study landed at the top of the Gospel Coalition's 2016 recommended reading list on the topic of racial division. Vast inequalities exist, the authors argue, between whites and blacks in the areas of income, employment, and healthcare, among others, all of which can be attributed to systemic racial injustice as the driving factor. All white evangelicals are complicit in the racial inequalities that exist, mainly because, quote, they support the American system and enjoy its fruits. Divided by faith may seem like a dispassionate study, but it has already emerged, it, uh, as it has already emerged, um, is a, a book of thorough, thorough advocacy and is steeped in woke thinking. For example, the authors argue that whites and blacks should work together to recognize and resist racialized structures of inequality in society. In combating racial inequality, whites as the main creators and benefactors of the racialized society must repent of their personal, historic, and social sins. So, this area is already in the church and actually critical race theory activist Abram X. Kendi, he's very famous now, um, has also become very popular in various church circles as well. His book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, um, Kendi writes this, he says, quote, the opposite of racist is not racist, isn't not racist, but it's anti-racist. Now, what's the difference? One either believes problems are rooted in groups of people as a racist or locates the roots of problems in power and policies as an anti-racist. One either allows racial inequalities to persevere as a racist or confronts racial inequalities as an anti-racist. There is no in-between safe space of not racist. So note here the highly activist component of Kendi's remarks. Now, what is actually happening is that racism is being redefined from its traditional definition of, you know, hatred or animosity towards a person of another ethnicity or skin color to now include racial inequalities, political policies, systems, and structures, right? We're seeing a transformation of the language and a hijacking of these terms, which once meant something very specific, to now being co-opted for this new ideology. Now, many more examples could be multiplied of this sort of invasion into the church from books like, you know, White Fragility, The Color of Compromise, Woke Church, and many other popular um, Christian authors and titles, right? Um, actually, Brandon J. Robinson, he's a gay writer and activist and a Christian minister who notes that racial and LGBTQ plus justice are, quote, inextricably linked. You know, he's not wrong. The issue is, not, is uh, also not only limited to racial justice, but there are a whole host of other issues, as, as we'll see later, um, such as LGBTQ+, and radical feminism, and gender ideology, and queer studies, etc., that are all related to these same concepts because they come from the same fundamental worldview. And sometimes this is, you know, broadly categorized as woke ideology. We covered that in a previous episode. Now, Larry Ball, he's a retired minister in the PCUSA. He notes this, that those promoting woke ideology, they know, quote, that there will be a fight. There will be resistance. It will take time, but they believe they will win. Right and might are on their side. With a slow march through the institutions of our nation, capturing them one by one, the theology of wokeism will become the new religion of America, and I'll say also Canada. LGBT. Uh, rights, statism, um, government schools that own the children, big tech censorship, and the marginalization of Christians, all of these they see as the future of this country. This world is important and they intend to own it. This is one reason they're winning. Wokeism is a secularized covenantalism and wants to capture your children. Your children are their target. 
few of them having any children of their own. Children are malleable. And if, they, and if we send them off to government schools and modern universities, wokeism believes it can convert them. They have been doing this for years. Only Christians did not know it. Secretly, they have been capturing our children. With the public coming out of the closet of doctrines like critical race theory, parents are beginning to see now what has been happening behind their backs for years is now out in the open and there's a pushback. Hopefully for the present generation, it's not too late. And I totally agree with what he says there. Wokeism and this whole um, social justice thing, it's really a kind of secularized post-millennial thought in a sense. They want to win the world to this. And while we don't have get, you know, time right now to get into every one of those topics uh, in detail, in this particular study, in this episode, we're going to look at what the Bible says about justice generally. And we'll also be learning how to address some of these issues specifically from scripture. So in this episode, we'll be taking a look at one of the most important concepts to understand at the root of all of this wokeness stuff, right? It's this. What is biblical justice compared to the secular social justice? So let me define a couple of terms here. Okay, so social justice. This term, it, it's been problematic as some people use it in a legitimate way, right? So we have to be careful to clarify with people what they mean by social justice before just assuming. So don't go in guns a blazing, right? <laughs> clarify with somebody. However, the majority of our secular culture uses it in an unbiblical way associated with the concepts of wokeness that we've been discussing here so far. Um, consider that when though, you know, I want you to consider this in terms of like, if you're a person who still uses this term social justice, just consider this, that both Antifa and the national, um, the American Nazi party, um, they can both call themselves social justice warriors. Um, that might be a problem, right? Uh, there may be some problems with clarity of this term if both of those groups can use it, right? So uh, I think though some use the term legitimately, our present cultural context, we have to be aware of this. It, it can make it particularly confusing and un unhelpful to use it. So I would actually just jettison that and use what I've uh, coined and heard other Christians use as biblical justice. I think that's a better term to use to communicate what a Christian should mean by justice. Actually, David Scott Allen in his book, Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice, he describes social justice this way as, quote, deconstructing traditional systems and structures deemed to be oppressive and redistributing power and resources from oppressors to their victims in the pursuit of equality of outcome. Now, you should recognize that that is not a biblical concept of justice. Now, before we jump in a little bit more, we're going to define two more important terms that we've already defined in previous episodes, but it's worth repeating here. Um, and these two terms are equality and equity. So equality, right? Equality. When I use this term equality, and when we use it in this particular episode, equality has to do with the equality of value, worth, dignity, um, uh, that every human being possesses as an image bearer of God, right? It's a, it's a term that we're going to use to refer to the equality of opportunity as well, meaning that in a just society, there should be no discrimination between people of different ethnicities or physical characteristics, etc., in terms of the opportunities that are available to them, right? And this is a biblical and a right concept of justice. It's also um, used to, to be the core principle that helped to form our liberal democracies um, where we enjoy various freedoms as equal citizens, right? That's a good concept. Now, equity, equity is the other term. And this concept is the concept of sameness. It desires the flattening of all distinctions between people, such as sex and gender roles, right? It's, it's also called radical egalitarianism. And it aims for equality of 
outcomes, not just equality of opportunities. It sees disparities as automatically problematic and unjust. And this is what secular social justice aims at, and it's actually unbiblical. God has created differences in people and even in outcomes as part of his good design. And this, this concept of equity is what more socialistic government policies adopt and inevitably leads to less freedom in order to forcibly flatten out the, dis- the disparities that happen naturally in society. Now, though both of these terms can be used in legitimate ways, typically our modern culture has distorted the concept of equity, right? They've co-opted that term and redefined it. So we have to be aware of this as we speak about these things and make sure that we're clear about what we mean. Now, let me now define what I mean by biblical justice, okay? That's what we're going to be studying in this episode. Biblical justice is a term that we're going to use to avoid confusion, and it's the type of justice that God commands. Now, it is true that biblical justice is social in a particular sense. In Leviticus 25, 1-7, for example, God's vision for justice includes uh, all of the social fabric of the creation, including the land, the domesticated animals, wild animals, and migrant workers, right? Individuals matter, but biblically speaking, you can't engage the individual outside of his or her social situation, right? So the Bible is concerned with the social dimensions of justice as well. However, there are other important factors to truly biblical justice, apart from just only its social dimension. So I'm going to give you six. That's what we're going to be unpacking in this episode. Biblical justice is one, truthful, secondly, direct, thirdly, impartial, fourthly, it's restorative and retributive, fifthly, proportional, and sixthly, limited. So truthful, direct, impartial, restorative and retributive, proportional and limited. Okay, now before we jump on into unpacking those six uh, markers of biblical justice, let me just say this, the true justice, true justice comes from God. Ultimately, the reason why Christians are passionate about true justice is because justice comes from God. God's justice flows from his love. In Psalm 33, 5, it says he loves righteousness and justice, right? It's at his core of who he is and how he rules the universe. In Psalm 89, it says righteousness and justice are the foundation of of your throne, right? Justice is the foundation of God's rule. We are created to be his vicegerents, extending his rule over the earth. So therefore, we must extend God's justice throughout the whole earth. However, since the fall um, uh, and mankind falling into sin, we've perverted God's justice. Indeed, the, the fall has corrupted our nature such that fallen man has a distorted sense of justice. For example, in Proverbs 28, 5, it says that evildoers do not understand what is right, right? So we shouldn't actually take Um, what fallen man considers just at just face value. But we must hold it up to the scrutiny of God's standards in his word to see if it's truly what is right, right? So let's now jump in and we're going to examine those six traits of biblical justice in comparison to secular social justice. So firstly, the first trait is truthful. So biblical justice is truthful. It accords with reality and the truth of God's word. And charges must be established on multiple independent lines of witnesses. The key concept here is that we must not pervert justice, right? Bildad, he actually asked the question, uh, does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right in Job 8, 3? Now, the obvious answer is no. God is described in scripture as the good and righteous judge of all the earth. See Genesis 18, 25 and Hebrews 12, 23. So therefore, he commands us to judge correctly and not to pervert justice. You can see Deuteronomy 16.20, it says justice and only justice 
you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land and that the Lord your God is giving to you. This means that we must not judge by mere appearances. Actually, Jesus says in John 7, 24, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly, right? He knows that we are all too easily prone to make quick and hasty judgments without knowing the whole story. We make half-informed assumptions that lead to wrong conclusions. Our modern social media outrage culture also doesn't really help this. Oftentimes we'll see various viral or outrages about some social justice issue, alleged crime or uh, incident, and we're rather up in these viral outrages in a frenzy of quick words to damn what um, we perceive as an injustice. Yet how often have those viral outrages turned out to be less than truthful or biased in the way that they were reported, right? As Christians, we can't get swept up in the viral trends of flashbang fires of outrage culture, right? The whole truth matters to do truly do justice, right? And often we cannot know the full story until after investigations have been thoroughly conducted. What the Apostle James says also applies online and in every place and every time, right? He says in James 1 verses 19 to 20, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And it's interesting that that word that we translate there as righteousness, the um, the kaiosune, right, is also translated as justice, right? So the anger of man does not produce the justice of God. So we can't get swept into those things. Now, let me talk a little bit about the Black Lives Matter movement, because we saw a prime example of that recently in the George Floyd riots of 2020. I'm sure everybody remembers that, right? Black squares were posted everywhere on social media and unqualified support was demanded before any of the final details of the case were even known. More than 8,000 protests erupted in over 2,500 cities, sometimes violent and sometimes destructive with calls to defund the police. Now, Floyd was exalted as a martyr and a patron saint of the systemic oppression of black people and police brutality, right? It was important that everyone, everyone had to support and promote this approved narrative. Yet the facts actually told a different and more nuanced story. Now, while his death is tragic, right? He was not the innocent patron saint that he was portrayed to be. Floyd was actually high on three times the lethal dose dose of fentanyl and meth when he was confronted by the police because he tried to pay a convenience store with a counterfeit bill. Now, just a side note here on fentanyl. Uh, My wife, she's an ER nurse and she has had to deal with fentanyl overdose cases before. And what would happen is that the uh, paramedics would actually call ahead to let the the hospital know that they have a fent uh, OD coming in. Because fentanyl is so potent of a drug that if you get any little, even, you know, grain on your skin, it can go through your skin into your blood. Like that's the type of, of strong dr- drug that uh, Floyd was on. And he had three times the lethal dose of it in his bloodstream. Now, he was a multiple convicted felon with a record of armed violence, including armed invasion and robbery of a pregnant woman's house and pointing a gun at her belly. Now, the, the county medical examiner in the case um, of, of George Floyd's death, Dr. Andrew Baker, he stated in his initial report that the aut- autopsy revealed, quote, no physical evidence suggesting that Mr. Floyd died of asphy- asphyxiation. Now, remember, that was the charge that Officer Chauvin had his n- knee on Floyd's neck and that he died of asphyxiation. 
that's not what the medical examiner found. The examiner also noted the inclusion of fentanyl and meth in his bloodstream, saying that it would be a fatal, quote, fatal level of fentanyl under normal circumstances. Now, Baker performed the autopsy before watching the videos of the police restraining Floyd because he wanted to avoid bias. Apparently, though, Floyd may have panicked and consumed the drugs to dispose of the evidence when the cops came. Now, this viral video that um, showed Floyd saying, I can't breathe, right? We all probably saw that on social media. Uh, it doesn't also show the fact that he was saying that well before he was subdued to the ground by the police. Also, it doesn't show the fact that it was Floyd himself who insisted, he insisted over and over on being put on the ground by the police. They were putting him in the car and he insisted that he be put placed on the ground. Now, body cam footage that came out from the officers uh, also show an alternate angle where it seems like the officer, Derek Chauvin's knee, was actually not on Floyd's neck, but on his shoulder blade. And much of this footage has actually been released in, um, you can see it, for example, in the Daily Wire's new documentary. I just, I just watched it um, the other day. It's called The Greatest Lie Ever Sold. And they show a lot of this video evidence. Now, in the final report, it was determined that Floyd's death was due to a combination of factors, including cardiovascular disease and drug intoxication, co contributing heavily in addition to his subdual by the officers. Now, these facts... They don't excuse whatever excessive force may or may not have been used or inappropriate technique by the officers that subdued Floyd, right? But it does tell a more nuanced story that is not useful to the agenda being pushed of systemic and targeted police brutality against blacks. Now, furthermore, similar details could be rehearsed for other popular cases that BLM uses, such as Michael Brown's case, right, that are held up as the normative examples of police brutality. The popular narrative, which went viral about that, you know, unarmed Michael Brown put his hands up in the air and yelled, don't shoot, uh, you know, don't shoot, right? Um, it actually turns out to be false. Um, according to several, even liberal sources that have had to admit the truth, um, such as you can find the story on the Washington Post, on the Chicago Tribune, and on Huffington Post. So these are not conservative sources. These are liberal sources. And they have to admit that, that truth, that Brown actually fought with the officer and tried to take his gun when he was shot. Yet these retractions are never publicized. And Michael Brown was one of the major cases used to spark the Black Lives Matter movement. Even though Brown's own father has decried BLM's lack of transparency in order to further their own personal and political agendas. Now, I've got all of the links to this in the, uh, the article that will accompany this episode. So if you want to fact check me and check out those links, please do. Now, BLM has received over $90 million in donations after the Floyd incident. Yet their organizers have used this money to donate millions to pro-trans activist organizations, right? LGBTQ plus activism and social justice. They, they go together because there's a shared worldview that they stem from, right? And BLM has also donated um, loads and loads of money to training radical protesters and rioters and to buy lavish mansions for themselves, their own organizers, right? So Patrice Coolers, for example, one of BLM's founders, um, she bought several mansions in the US for you know, in excess of $3.2 million, including a $1.4 million home in the white neighborhood of Malibu um, in California, kind of ironic there, right? She says that she feels insecure around white people and then goes and buys a mansion there. Um, she also eyed property in the Bahamas at an ultra-exclusive resort where celebrities 
rookies like Justin Timberlake and Tiger Woods have homes. Uh, and these are priced between five to $20 million, according to a local um, real estate agent. Now, even Floyd's former roommates, right? Um, they admitted to not receiving not one cent, no money from all those donations that were given to Black Lives Matter to help pay for Floyd's um, rent debts, right? He had a whole bunch of outstanding debt for the apartment that they shared. Listen, BLM is a scam and it's a Marxist organization. According to the admission of their own founders, you can find videos of that. And they hold to a radical agenda against the nuclear family and promote radical transgender ideology, according to their own statements on their website, well, was on their website until they eventually took it down because guess what? Christians started finding out. Roland Fryer, he's a black economist and a professor at Harvard. He carried out a thorough investigation of police shootings in 10 major cities across the U.S. And he concluded that there is no evidence of racial bias in police shootings. In Houston, for example, he found that blacks were 24% less likely than whites to be shot by officers, even though the suspects were armed and violent. And a Washington State University study also found that police officers were less likely to shoot black suspects than white suspects in realistic simulations of both armed and unarmed scenarios. There are many other studies which, which paint a more nuanced picture of racial tensions that could be cited. Now, does this mean that legitimate instances of police brutality and racism don't exist at all? Of course not. Okay, I want to say that loud and clear because some people are going to misquote me and say that I'm totally denying everything, right? It does not mean that. Of course, sin exists. You're going to have racism, right? But what these details do mean is that it means that truth actually matters, right? However, the, the riots of outrage that ensued from these instances caused massive damage to society and many innocent white, Latino, and black business owners, shops, and families, right? According to Fee, actually, in one of their articles and other sources, the total damages for the BLM riots was upwards of $2 billion, that billion with a B. That's a perversion of justice. Those rioting in the streets and burning down cities, all in the name of justice, actually make innocent business owners, families, and people pay for the sins of others. Jumping to conclusions and onto outrage mobs is not what biblically-minded Christians do. Now, let me bring this home a little bit more to Canada, right? Let's talk about Canada's residential schools, because this is not just a problem. This social justice stuff is not a problem only in the States. It's here too. Right? Similar stories of perverted justice and falsehood occur in Canada over race relations. The indigenous issue is one such example. Now, the now famous Kamloops Indian Residential Schools case, uh, where it's alleged that the unmarked graves of hundreds of native children were found outside a residential school has led to the burning down of dozens of historic churches in protest. Right? So this happened in Canada. The story has gone viral all over the mainstream media that Canada is a historically racist nation and that the residential schools abused and killed many Aboriginal people. However, is that true? The original story was based off findings from ground penetrating radar, GPR, which is unable to distinguish what lies beneath the surface because it's not a detailed image of what's underneath. Now, since then, uh, through some independent investigative researching, which is actually quite hard to find on Google because <laughs> Google is one of those woke big tech corporations that promotes this agenda. Um, but anyways, it's come to light 
that what the GPR actually likely detected was actually the remains of septic canals and drainage systems. Several other sources have reported on this, including Lauren Southern, uh, James Pugh, Rebel News, True North News, and Woke Watch Canada, right? Um, and they show the evidence. They show photographic and video evidence of this. And there's an entire website actually made by an architectural consultant called Graves in the Apple Orchard, you can look that up if you want, that lays out the survey data showing that the ground disturbances were irrigation ditches, utility lines, backhoe trenches, water lines, etc. Right? Actually, researcher Nina Green, um, she testified this, quote, there's no way GPR can distinguish between a filled-in septic field trench and a filled-in grave. The GPR profiles will look the same. Now, former um, KIRS student, right, so from the Kamloops School, there's a former student, Emma Baker, she admitted in an interview with CTV, CTV um, that um, when she attended the Kamloops Residential School from 1952 to 1956, she and her friends made up stories about graves in the apple orchard. And even the Kamloops um, chief himself um, affirmed that it was not a mass grave. Not one single body, get this, not one single body has been found or produced from es excavations. And also the public has been barred from entry into the site. And even the airspace above it has been restricted. Now, why is that? If it's really true, why is that? Why are they preventing the, uh, the, the confirmation of these graves? Well, because the truth would not fit the narrative that they're trying to portray. But truth actually matters when it comes to reconciliation. As Mark Milk notes in his book, The Victim Cult, How the Culture of Blame Hurts Everyone and Wrecks Civilizations, he says this, quote, For example, even by the Canadian government's Truth and Reconciliation Commission's own estimate, when the proportion of registered First Nation children in residential schools was at its peak in 1944 and 45, the proportion was 31%. Thus, even though that was the high watermark for attendance, and even if one accepts the commission's narrative that all residential schools made victims of all students beyond those subject, subject to sexual and physical abuse, it is yet a leap to attribute modern day social and economic outcomes for all ab Aboriginal Canadians to an education model where less than one third attended at its peak. Even if the link between the attendance at a residential school and poor economic outcomes and social outcomes in the 21st century was inextricably tied for every single attendee, that link would still not explain the social and economic outcomes for um, the vast majority of Aboriginal Canadians who never attended such schools and nor did their ancestors. Yet, you know, thousands of Canadians are led to don orange shirts and donate to these causes. Now, again, this does not mean that there has never, ever been any abuses in residential schools or injustices committed against Indigenous people. Of course, because all are sinful, we can expect sin in every area. But truth matters, especially when opportunists and politicians want to manipulate us and manipulate well-meaning people to further their own agendas. As Dr. Vodi Bakum has noted, simply put, quote, we must be careful when we hear and or draw conclusions. We must reject simplistic univariate analyses as the basis for sweeping accusations of bias. 
And I think this is actually what God commands us to do. See Zechariah 7 verses 9 to 10, where he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. There are legitimate instances of injustice in this world that have to be corrected. But if we keep chasing down contrived and hastily formulated narratives in the service of uh, a particular agenda, we'll find ourselves fighting windmills and imaginary dragons, just like Don Quixote, right? We should be, we should be sure that we're not perverting justice. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, the Bible gives us a way to do that in multiple independent lines of testimony. So all throughout scripture, from the Old to the New Testament, God's standard for the establishing of a charge against someone else is the necessity of at least two to three independent lines of witnesses. Now, this is consistent. For example, in the Old Testament, uh, Deuteronomy 17, 6, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. Um, Deuteronomy 19, 15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with enough any offense that he has committed. Numbers 35 verse 30, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. And this is not just Old Testament, it's in the New Testament too. So for example, Matthew 18, 16, right? Um, This is from the lips of Jesus himself. He says, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Right. Second uh, Corinthians 13, one says that this will be my third visit to you, Paul writing to the Corinthian church. And he says that every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And he, again, uses the same standard in first Timothy five nineteen, where he says, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. And then the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 10, 28 says, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, right? Our modern day context, right? Today, uh, we see this principle upheld in Western law courts, which are actually based on a Judeo-Christian worldview and principles in the need for multiple witnesses in a um, court proceeding and lines of evidence to corroborate a story. Right? This is sometimes done through um, things like eyewitness testimony or evidence or um, things like, you know, forensic science and so on, right? Those can be other testimonies or other witnesses, right, that are brought forward. The principle, though, is the same, right? We cannot be sure of a correct judgment without testing it from multiple angles and corroborating it with multiple witnesses. And where it's impossible to attain multiple witnesses to an incident, we have to defer judgment and not speak in absolute terms. Right. The, it, um, for example, a guilty verdict has to be rendered beyond reasonable doubt. Right. The truth is that in some crimes in this life, they may not be brought to perfect justice. But we're going to come back to that point later in this uh, episode. Let's move to our second point about biblical justice. It's direct. Biblical justice is direct. Its rewards and punishments are meted out directly to the achievers and the offenders not to people of their descent or ancestry or tribe or ethnicity or social group or skin color or whatever. 
right? Today's secular social justice seeks to punish those it sees as belonging to an oppressor group allegedly for the sins of their forefathers and ancestors. Whether it's, you know, white, straight, Christian, male, or rich people, they're told that they must pay reparations for the injustices committed by others of their identity group in the past against oppressed groups, even though they themselves have not committed any of those injustices. Secular social justices, punishments are thus indirect, but God's standard of justice demands direct punishment and reward for the person committing the acts. So for example, Deuteronomy 24, 16 says, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. And you can see that again, repeated in second Kings 14, 6. Um, Ezekiel 18, 20 also says the soul who sins shall die, right? The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself, right? So heaping punishment upon groups, regardless of their actual guilt in committing crimes is unjust. Just because you belong to a particular identity group does not mean you're automatically guilty. And this is why social justice initiatives such as affirmative action, and reparations, they are actually unjust. These policies, they penalize people simply because they belong to a particular identity group instead of treating them as individuals. Now let's talk a little bit about Robin Hood policies, right? When a government decides to take affirmative action, they're intentionally discriminating against people of a supposed oppressor or privileged class or group in order to show partiality and favoritism to someone who's of a supposed oppressed or underprivileged group. Now, however, this, this does not take into account what the individuals have done to merit reward or punishment. It only considers their group identity and is thus unfair and unjust. Right? Similarly, when reparations are demanded, the government is forcibly taking money from people through taxation and then redistributing it to others, supposedly playing the role of some sort of status Robin Hood, stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. However, stealing is still stealing. Now, in one example, the famous social justice activist Tanahisi quotes in his famous article, The Case for Reparations in the Atlantic magazine, he makes the observation that, quote, Black families, regardless of income, are significantly less wealthy than white families. The Pew Research Center estimates that white households are worth roughly 20 times as much as black households, and that whereas only 15% of whites have zero or negative wealth, more than a third of blacks do. Now, even if we take these facts at face value, this tells us nothing of the reasons of why this is the reality. Did these white families make their wealth through hard-earned work and wise investments, right? Were they uh, directly involved in or profited from chattel slavery somehow? Um, how long have they been living in the country and how much have they um, been passed down through inheritances which were built upon, right? Much wealth building is actually generational. But Coates here, he tries to make the case for, for reparations that were paid um, for, to, in Nazi Germany to the Jews in the 1950s. He's saying, you know, well, we did it, you know, back then after the world wars. So why not do it now? However, whatever one makes of the case for reparations from the Holocaust, one significant detail is overlooked by quotes. The people who suffered under the Nazis and survived were still alive in the 1950s. And thus there, there was some semblance of direct justice, right? The age that we live in today, though, the individuals who suffered under the horrors of chattel slavery, they're dead and gone. And so are their evil slave masters. 
Similar points and questions could be raised about our Canadian context with regards to reparations to Indigenous communities. When almost one in four Canadians are immigrants, how can it possibly be direct form of justice to tax every single Canadian to pay for the sins of people who are long gone and dead, who uh, at least 25% of them would definitely have no relationship to them, right? If one in four Canadians, 25% of um, Canadians are immigrants, then that means that at least 25% of us shouldn't be paying these taxes that go towards reparations then, right? But listen, we must all bear personal responsibility for actions. The noted black economist Thomas Sowell, he raises this point. He says, quote, have we reached the ultimate stage of absurdity where some people are held responsible for things that happened before they were born, while other people are not held responsible for what they themselves are doing today? Jesus himself, when he comes to bring perfect judgment, he will not judge like social justice warriors do, but rather his judgments of rewards and punishments will be direct. He says in Matthew 16, 27, for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Right. And in Romans 2, 6, Paul says that he will render to each one according to his works. Social, uh, you know, secular social justice policies like reparations and affirmative action, they tend towards more injustice because it's indirect. It's not against the real perpetrators and do not actually right wrongs, but actually encourage entitlement. Right. The irony of the indirect nature of social justice policies is that it actually ends up directly hurting the ones that they purport to try to help in the long run by facilitating entitlement, a lack of responsibility and dependency on the state and further injustice. Thus, we see that in many inner city areas that follow these liberal social justice policies, many poorer and disadvantaged communities actually end up worse off with higher rates of crime, fatherlessness, drugs, gangs, teen pregnancies, and high school dropouts. And this is well-documented, by the way. You can see Thomas Sowell's book, uh, Discrimination and Disparities for that. It's a really great read, and he goes through a lot of the data on this. Hey friends, I just wanted to take a quick moment to ask for your support. If you've benefited from the Ministry of Theotivity, please prayerfully consider partnering with me by giving a donation of any amount. Big or small, it all helps. I want to keep Theotivity going and to find ways to make it financially self-sufficient. I'd also like to be able to invest in advertising and upgrades to improve the quality of the content, all of which require money. To date, I've paid for everything out of pocket. However, with a young family, we recently adopted a little baby boy, and other commitments, this is not something I can reasonably continue to do without your help. When I started Theotivity, I had no clue if or how God would use it. It was an experiment in stepping out in faith to build something for the sake of the kingdom. I'm happy to announce that God has used it in surprising ways, with the site receiving at least two to 3,000 visits consistently per month, and the podcast steadily growing in listenership. I'm genuinely humbled and give glory to God. If you're like me, I know you long to see more solid Christian content getting out there, but that takes time, effort, and money. So if this is something that you'd like to see continue, and if you found value in the content here at Theotivity, skip a few fancy latte drinks from your favorite woke coffee shop, and please consider donating at theotivity.com donate. You can find links to donate in the description of this post or episode. Thanks so much. Now back to the episode. Let's talk about the third point about biblical justice. It's impartial. Biblical justice is impartial. It does not show preferential treatment to anyone based on an identity group. So biblically, showing favoritism even to a suffering group is repeatedly denounced throughout scripture because it contradicts the very character of God who shows no partiality. See Romans 2.11 for that. 
right? Um, Exodus 23, verses 2 to 3, for example, it says, You shall, shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many, so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Deuteronomy 27, 19 says that cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, right? Um, uh, Deuteronomy 16, 19 says you shall not pervert justice. You shall show no partiality and you shall not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Uh, Leviticus 19 verse 15 says um, you shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great but in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You can also see passages like Jeremiah 22, three and Proverbs 18, five, right? God's law forbids any partiality, whether to the great or to the poor, right? Justice was to be blind in that sense. It didn't change based on a person's appearance, ethnicity, sex, or any other identity marker. And this is why the symbol for justice, I'm sure you've seen it, is lady justice. And she's blindfolded with scales and to show that justice is impartial, justice is blind, right? And each case is weighed properly according to its own merits. A person is not to be judged as guilty or innocent based on their skin color, ethnicity, or social economic status, or sex, or, or ability, or any other, other identity marker, right? Each person is to be judged according to the merits of their own case, according to God's righteous standards. Contrary to this, today's secular social justice divides people up into oppressor and oppressed identity groups and imputes guilt or innocence on them just based on that. It's a perpetual game of grievances between oppressor and oppressed. Now let's talk a little bit here and take a little side note to, to denote the true ground for reconciliation because a lot of this secular social justice, that's what they're looking for. And you know, Paul in the first century, he didn't go around playing games of grievances between Jews and Gentiles in the newly formed churches, right? Um, in the first century, the racial or ethnic divide between Jew and Gentile, that was one of the most severe. Jews and Gentiles wouldn't even eat together. Now, furthermore, the Jews could have easily brought up the oppression of the Gentile Egyptians or Babylonians or Assyrians or Persians and even the Romans around them for how they had been historically treated as the Jewish people, right? They could have pointed to the mass taxation of the Romans and complained that the whole system was rigged against them by these Roman supremacists, right? Who enforced their cultural hegemony upon them. They could have demanded that they repent of their Romanness and divest themselves of privilege and pay reparations. But instead... Paul, when he's writing to a mixed congregation in Ephesians 2, he says this, but, you, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. True reconciliation, whether it be racial or any other kind, is found only in Christ. He is our peace because all have sinned. And there's no such thing as a certain class of people who are innocent merely by belonging to a particular identity group. Black or white, rich or poor, all sin is common to man. And every group of people since the fall has sinned against others. Uh, so, for example, take the sin of slavery, right? Um, Slavs were so widely used as slaves in both Europe and the Islamic world that the very word slave that we have today is derived from, from that word slav. Right? Not only in English, but also in other European languages and as well in Arabic. At least a million Europeans were enslaved by North African 
pirates alone from the 1500s to the 1800s. Europeans enslaved other Europeans. Asians enslaved other Asians. Africans enslaved other Africans. The indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere enslaved other indigenous people. It was the Africans actually who enslaved their fellow Africans and sold some of these slaves to the Europeans or to the Arabs and, and kept others for themselves. Even at the peak of the Atlantic slave trade, Africans retained more slaves for themselves than they sent to the Western Hemisphere. Slavery was also common in India, where it's been estimated that there are more slaves than in the entire Western Hemisphere. Arabs were the leading slave traders in East Africa, ranging over an area larger than all of Europe. China, in centuries past, has been described as one of the largest and most comprehensive markets for the exchange of human beings in the world. So thus, because sin is common to all mankind, we're all on equal footing. All are in need of reconciliation. And that is only brought by Christ. And God's law demands impartiality, regardless of a person's socioeconomic status. This was not just an Old Testament standard, but one which God intends to stand for perpetuity for, for his people. James 2 verses 1 and 9 say this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. Let's look at our fourth marker of biblical justice. It's restorative and retributive. Biblical justice is restorative and retributive. It seeks to restore that which is broke, was broken and to punish the guilty. Okay, So one of the clearest places to see this in scripture is actually in the case laws in Exodus and in Deuteronomy for theft. So I'll go to Exodus 22 verses 1 to 6. It says this, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. And if the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it's an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. So here we see that if someone steals livestock from someone else and has already killed or sold it, then they are to repay the person from whom they stole it fivefold or fourfold, depending on the value of the animal. Now, why is this? Because the thief was restoring not just the value of the animal itself, but also the, la the loss of productivity that the owner would have incurred by not having the animal because they would have used it for work, right? An ox would have been used for plowing. And so the time without it, uh, the owner would have incurred a loss of productivity as well, right? The difference between the ox and the sheep is that the ox takes a longer, a lot longer to mature than a sheep. And it's also a bigger animal. So it's worth more. That's why the payment for an ox was more. Now, if the thief had nothing to pay, he was to be sold into labor as a slave to pay off his debt. Now, this is not the chattel slavery of North America. Okay, understand that slavery in the Bible is different. This was uh, so that he could pay back the debt that he incurred directly to the one who he had stolen from. Right? It would only last as long as it took him to repay the debt. And if he still had the animal when he, that he had stolen, right, he would actually repay less because the animal was restored to his owner. But there's still a loss of productivity for the time that was stolen, which is why he restores double, right? The rest of the chapter now goes on to give other case examples. So for example, um, in verses five to six, it says, if a man ca causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. Notice it's from his own that he's giving back to make restitution, right? Not from taxation of other people, 
right? And it says furthermore that if a fire breaks out and caches in thorns and is stacked uh, so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or, or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. Again, it's direct. It's the person who did the crime, right? Who's paying. Right? In these cases, restitution was made directly by that person who, um, and directly to the person who was injured. Right? The penalty fit the crime and it's paid to the one who incurred loss or has been offended, not to the state, right? not to some other third party. This is very different to our secular social justice concept of reparations. And this is the type of justice that the civil government should uphold. In Romans 13, 4, it says, For he's, that's the civil government, is a is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, let's talk a little bit about the fixation on disparities, right? Another feature of these woke ideologies and social justice is that it fixates on disparities between identity groups and assumes that there's only nefarious explanations for them. However, not all disparities are unjust. Some disparities just are, and some are, you know, because of different choices that individuals make, and some are legitimately unjust. The details matter, though, right? Woke culture and social justice tends to only highlight the disparities that serve their goals. So, Social justice author and activist Robin D'Angelo, she's become very, very famous. She writes in her book, White Fragility, quote, racism is deeply embedded in the fabric of our society, it is not limited to a single act or person, nor does it move back and forth one day benefiting whites and another day or even era benefiting people of color. The direction of power between white people and people of color is historic, traditional and normalized in ideology. Whites hold social and institutional positions in society to infuse their racial prejudice into the laws, policies, practices, and norms of society in a way that people of color do not. Now note what D'Angelo, she's arguing, that white people are always guilty by the mere fact of the color of their skin, and the fact that in her view, some of uh, some people of similar skin, skin color hold positions of power in society. Now, because of this, anyone who has white skin is complicit in this system, according to her. The mere fact that disparities exist and you happen to share this, the same skin color as the people who are in privileged positions makes one guilty. Now, that is not just wrong and stupid. That's actually racist. That's racist. Let's look at another example, a further example. Right, so take, for example, the fact, and this will perhaps help illustrate this more clearly. Take the fact that bank lenders across the U.S. rejected twice as many blacks as whites for home loans, right? 44.6% compared to 22.3%, right? So taking a loan, that fact seems pretty damning, right? But the same U.S. Commission on Civil Rights report found that white Americans are turned down nearly twice as often as Asian Americans and Native Hawaiians for the same mortgages, right? So 22.3% versus 12.4%. Now, does this prove systemic racial discrimination against whites? Well, of course not. How about the fact that Black-owned banks turned down Black applicants for home mortgages at a higher rate than did white-owned banks? Is that systemic racism? No. The median net worth um, of conservative Protestants came into about $26,000 compared to a median net worth of $150,000 for proponents of Judaism. Is that evidence of you know, inequality, um, you know, some sort of systemic anti-conservative Protestantism? No, clearly not, right? These are just, these are just are, they just are, right? Um, 
Professor Thaddeus J. Williams, great name, by the way. Uh, he has a book, which is actually a really good book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. He calls um, you know, these things undamning explanations right, for many of the disparities in life. He knows this, quote, when we automatically assume damning explanations for unequal outcomes, we not only lock ourselves in a prison of never-ending rage, but also dull our senses to the point that we will be useless for the sacred task of recognizing and resisting the real racism, real sexism, and other real vicious isms around us. Right? So one major undamning explanation for some disparities is actually freedom. Right? Because people are free to make different decisions, that necessitates that there will be different outcomes. Wow, right? Um, the only way to eliminate that would be actually to eliminate freedom itself, which is what some of these woke ideologies want to do and why some of these woke global elites move more and more towards totalitarian forms of government. See, global elites who fancy themselves to be hum humanity's saviors, they have to step in with more laws and more forced wealth, wealth right, redistribution to enforce social justice until this quest for equality turns our societies into communist Russia, North Korea, or Venezuela 2.0. Let's not go there. Let's talk a little bit about reparations and affirmative action. I know I, I mentioned it so far, let's actually dig into what it is. So secular social justice is concerned instead with reparations and the associated concept of affirmative action, right? The danger of these policies, which come from secular social justice ideology, is that it cloaks itself in the language of compassion, but it's fundamentally different to the biblical conception of restorative and retributive justice, right? Reparations are payments or fines exacted upon persons who are considered to be part of an oppressor or majority group of people oppressed um, uh, and, and paid to minority groups or oppressed groups, right? Affirmative action are policies that are enacted in order to favor and give a leg up to people who are considered members of a historically marginalized or oppressed group. Now, both of these concepts, they deal with people primarily according to their identity groups and are therefore indirect and founded upon showing partiality to the oppressed group, right? They do not actually correct wrongs done by individuals, but rather try to correct perceived injustices towards identity groups. Thus, someone who happens to belong to an oppressor group, so for example, if you're a white male heterosexual, um, would be disadvantaged or penalized by these policies and persons who happen to belong to an oppressed group, like a visible ethnic minority or LGBTQ persons, right? They receive advantages and incentives regardless of their own performance, actions, or merits. It is therefore inherently unfair since a person is judged or rewarded um, regardless of their individual responsibility for their actions. It also goes contrary to the Bible's commands to not show partiality either to the rich or to the poor or anyone according to their identity group. Now, furthermore, the peddling of this social justice reparations is actually quite big business. If you're wondering why they peddle this nonsense, right? They're, those promoting it are making a big buck, right? So Robin D'Angelo, for example, she charges $15,000 per speaking event. And she's earned well over $2 million from just her book sales alone. And those went up in recent times um, for white fragility. And even while she was castigating capitalism as a racist economic system, yet she's profiting from it. And now Ibram X. Kendi and Tahisi um, quotes, um, they have even a higher price tag, right? Kendi, his speaking fee is $25,000, while Coates' fee is between thirty dollars and $40,000 per event, right? There's a lot of personal greed behind this woke agenda. They don't actually care for black people. I don't think so. They're greedy. 
Now, this is not to say that we should not try to help people who find themselves at a disadvantage because of life circumstances beyond their control, or even to help those who have reaped the consequences of sin, either their own or other people's sin. However, Christian charity and compassion is very different from state-compelled discrimination and favoritism, right? It is unjust to help someone out by disadvantaging or taking from someone else. And politicians can tend to appear very generous with other people's money, right? Scripture does not permit Robin Hood policies. Partiality is forbidden according to a person's identity group, either to advantage them or disadvantage them, right? And if we're going to show Christian charity, that's out of your own pocket, out of your own free will. Let's talk about proportional. So biblical justice is proportional. Its rewards and punishments are proportional to the act or crime committed. They are just weights and judgment. So for example, the lex talionis principle, an eye for an eye, right? Uh, true justice requires the punishment and rewards to match the crime or good work, right? There are many scriptures that illustrate the standard of justice. Its earliest expression is actually in Genesis. Genesis 9, 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God has made man in his own image. And many theologians view this as the first foundation of the biblical basis for civil government's rule, role as um, executing public justice. Because murder is the taking of life, the murderer forfeits his own as a just punishment. This principle of proportionality is called the lex talionis. Uh, the principle is actually so important that it comes up several times throughout the law. Right? So if it, in Exodus 21, it says, but if there's harm, then you shall pay life for life Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And you can see that also echoed in Leviticus 24, 19 to 20, and Deuteronomy 19, 21. And the rest of the law affirms this principle of proportionality in judgment and punishments. It was even extended to livestock damage, right? So it says, for example, in, in Leviticus 24, whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. Right, this set Israel actually apart from the other nations and pagan cycles of vengeance, which would simply escalate as a revenge feud, you know, continued. Someone stole your donkey, so you'd go and break their arm and then they'd retaliate by killing you. And then your clan would retaliate by destroying their village. And this cycle of revenge would keep escalating disproportionately. And this is why God tells us not to take revenge, but to leave vengeance to the Lord in Romans twelve nineteen. And then he gives us the mechanism that he has instituted to carry out public justice according to his righteous standards, right? In Romans, in Romans 13, and we're told that God has given the civil government the power of the sword to execute justice. And the sword is an instrument of execution. Thus, the Bible standards uphold capital punishment for certain specific capital crimes as laid out in scripture, such as premeditated murder and rape, right? For other serious crimes, death was the maximum sentence when it was prescribed in law, not necessarily the required one, right? So judges were to weigh the circumstances of each offense and to consider the offender's hard-heartedness before wisely applying the standards of Mosaic law, right? So we can't say um, this is only for Old Testament Israel though, right? Because Paul actually affirms this in the New Testament in Acts 25, 11. He says, if then I'm a wrongdoer, and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death, right? So Paul there was actually affirming that there is a rightness for the death penalty, and he wasn't even willing to escape it if he truly deserved to die. 
Right, so the, the this principle of proportionality is also upheld in the case laws of restitution for damaged or stolen property. Right, what was stolen or damaged? We looked at this before. Had to be restored plus the value of work or productivity that was lost. Right, it's proportional to what the loss was. And note again that these judgments are direct against the person who committed the crime, not against the identity group. And note also that it's calculable. Right, you could actually figure out what was due to make full restitution. And this brings us to the point of the disproportionality of social justice, right? The biblical standard is different to secular social justice's standards, which are inherently unproportional and impossible to calculate proportionality, right? So how are we to calculate what is proportional for crimes against identity group or crimes that were committed generations ago? Or what do we, how do we even quantify just recompense for such damages? This, this is why advocates for reparations seldom have a substantiated and justified limit on the sum of the reparations due. Right? Proponents for reparations for slavery, for example, um, Rashawn Ray and Andre M. Perry, they argue that the government should restore that deferred wealth through reparations to their descendants in the form of individual cash payments in the amount that will close the black-white racial wealth divide. And they claim that equal opportunities are not enough, but we must actively use reparations to produce equal outcomes. These social justice proponents often point to select facts and groups' demographics to try to make their point. However, they don't consider the uniqueness of every individual and culture and historic factors, right? Group, group statistics, while some, sometimes useful, can't tell the specifics of people's situations, such as what was their work ethic? How long have they been in the country? What was the reason for their differing performance? Um, how does their worldview affect the way that they live their lives? And a host of other very important information to judging their situation rightly for a given individual. And furthermore, these statistics can sometimes neglect to track the progress of individuals. So for example, a statistic could say that 40% of black men under 30 in 2004 made X amount of, num of money compared to 30% of black men under 30 in 2018 who made Y amount of money. Right? And that may not prove, though, what it's sometimes supported, um, said to support, right? Because within those 14 years between 20, 20, uh, 2004 and 2018, all of the men who were in the first set would have likely aged past their 30s and therefore would no longer be part of the demographic in the second statistic, right? So you're looking at a whole different set of people. And so we wouldn't even be tracking the progress of the same individuals, but a totally new set of individuals with their own unique factors. And this sort of equivocation and selective data citing is common for social justice advocates. We have to be aware of that. Now, some advocates, they estimate the bill for reparations in the U.S. could be as high as 5 to 50 trillion U.S. dollars today, with some estimates even being higher. But in the end, they're just that, estimates and guesses, which can never be proven because of the complexity of factors. And aside from the question of where all that money is going to come from in a just manner, since the government does not have money, it takes money via taxation and taxation of the entire population, including immigrants and people who had nothing to do with chattel slavery. I, so it wouldn't be direct against those you know, who are guilty of directly profiting from slavery. These policies have historically shown not to solve the problems faced by black and minority populations, but actually exasperate them and create dependency classes on welfare state. And I think that's the plan all along. Um, the truth is that it would be impossible to accurately measure the proportional damage and loss of wealth for victims of slavery this far removed by time. It's a hypothetical that we can never hope to calculate, and anyone who proposes to be able to do so is naive or misguided.
The factors are simply too complex to know how any single person would have done had they not been enslaved, far less for their descendants or their descendants' descendants or an entire group. Furthermore, most proponents of reparations for slavery are not concerned with vetting people to be actual descendants of slaves, but rather want to apply reparations indiscriminately on all black people, as if all black people were a monolithic group. But just because you have black skin doesn't mean that your ancestors were enslaved. Um, therefore, um, social justice's reparations and solutions tend to be disproportionate and hence unjust. Because, again, just because you have white skin doesn't mean that your ancestors were slavers, right? There's white people who were slaves and there's black people who were enslavers. Anyways, let's go to our last one. Biblical justice is limited. Limited. Reward and punishment do not continue on in perpetuity in this life. That's left up to God in eternity. Thus, there is a recognition that in this life, there will not be perfect justice, as some people die before receiving their just reward or get away with things in this life, but it entrusts the ultimate cosmic justice to God. Right? So biblical justice recognizes the impossibility of perfect justice in this life, and it leaves that to God in eternity. Right? We're to take comfort that even if we do not achieve perfect justice in our lifetimes, no one escapes God's final justice in the end. As Abram said, Right? Shall not the judge of all the earth do that which is just in Genesis 18.25? Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Right? So no one escapes the judgment of God. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed uh, for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Right? Jesus himself will execute perfect justice. He promises that in John 5, 22. And we know that his judgment will be correct as, ju as God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, Romans 2, 14 to 16, right? Um, now, one of the reasons secular social justice goes astray is this quest for this cosmic justice now. And because uh, at its heart, the ideology is built upon atheistic and naturalistic principles that have no hope of an afterlife. That's why it's so important for them. That's why you hear those chants of justice now, no justice, no peace, right? Thus, for them, justice has to be achieved now or never. But as Christians, we don't believe that, right? Revelation describes a coming day where everyone's going to be gathered before that great white throne and the books are going to be opened and God's going to judge justly, right? Um, we should pursue justice as far as is possible today. As God's people, we are to seek to do justice and to want to see true justice established in our societies. However, we are only to pursue justice as far as is possible today and leave the rest up to the one who will judge things perfectly and justly in eternity. Secular social justice can't do this because it's atheistic at its core and it has no hope of an afterlife. And this is why slogans are towards justice now and no justice, no peace. So in summary, in the end, Today's secular social justice gets these important factors about justice wrong. It's often based on falsehood or half-truths. It's subjective accusations and flattening of details or complexity of reality. It tends to be indirect, punishing those who weren't directly involved in the injustice, and it's redistributive instead of retributive. It's seeking to obtain equal outcomes by compelled redistribution of resources, and thus its proposed remedies are disproportionate and unlimited, having no endpoint in sight. Just continual repentance, grievances, penance through reparations, and no hope of absolution. And finally, due to its root in naturalism and the quest for a man-made utopia, it seeks final justice now 
even when it's impossible. Perhaps you've noticed that this is fundamentally an inversion of the biblical worldview. It answers the four fundamental worldview questions differently to what the Bible does. You know, where do we come from? What went wrong? What can make us right? And what is our ultimate hope? And therefore, we can't mix Christianity with secular social justice or critical theory or any of these neo-Marxist ideologies. It's a false social justice cult. The root problem with the ideology is that it's not just some benign set of ideas, but it's actually part of a comprehensive and rival worldview or religion, complete with its own religious language. Secular social justice authors Ray and Perry, they claim this quote that the federal government atoned for the lost equity from anti-black housing, transportation, and business policy. Note the use of the atonement language, right? Guilt needs to be atoned for. And even secularists, they know this. However, their atonement can never suffice because there's only one once-for-all atonement. See Hebrews 10 verses 1 to 18. Right? The solution is not perpetual resentment, grudge-holding, and entitlement. The biblical solution is forgiveness through Christ's atonement that breaks down the dividing wall that we saw. That dividing wall of hostility between the races, between any ethnicities, between the two men being made one in Christ, as Ephesians 2 says. That's the true grounds for reconciliation. So just to recap, again, true biblical justice is truthful, is direct, is impartial, restorative and retributive, proportional and limited. Okay? You need to know that as you engage with secular social justice because it gets it wrong on all six counts. Right? And this is why as Christians, we can't go along with that. We have to look and work for true justice as God defines it. He is the one who defines what is right, what is wrong, and what is truly just. So I hope that you found this episode helpful in bringing the biblical text to bear on this issue and to show positively what true biblical justice actually is. And if we were to apply those standards to society, we would have such a beautiful, just society. Obviously not perfect in this life, but that's what we want to aspire to as Christians. And that's what we want to see enacted into laws and legislations in our lands. And we should try to advocate for that because that will also benefit not just us, but our neighbors as well. And that's one way that you love your neighbor. I hope that you found this episode helpful. Until next time, Soli Deo Gloria. Thanks for listening to the Theotivity Podcast. If you found this content helpful or edifying, please leave a review on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, follow us on social media and consider sharing this episode to help Theotivity reach others as well. Check out theotivity.com for resources, info on how to support, and subscribe to our monthly newsletter to stay up to date on all the latest content. Until next time, live and create to the glory of God.